Thank you, thank you. Um, I guess I can make that joke again that I'm Nick, since Nick just walked off the <laughs> the podium. Um, but today we're going to be in Revelations. If you need a, ch- a Bible, the ushers will be bringing that up, so just signify. Uh, so we're going to be in Revelations, Revelations chapter 3. So if you could please open your Bibles there. So Revelations chapter 3, and the title of the sermon, because I always forget this, <laughs> is a searching and fearless self-inventory. We're going to have some slides up there. I'm not really going to be using it per se, it's just more for informational purposes as we go through the sermon. Hopefully you guys can see, and I'm not blocking that. But yeah, but Revelations chapter 3, we're going to be reading from verse 14 to 22. Let me give you a quick segue into this, right? So uh, I know, for example, when we think of revelations, right, we think of something scary, dragons, all of that, right? Um, funny enough, for me, when I started out in the faith, I love revelations. Like, I love the dragons, the fights. I'm like, yes, Michael, go get him. You know, when he says, um, <laughs> and there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his agents. I'm like, Michael, go punch him. Make a fireball, something. I love that stuff now. For the wrong reasons, obviously. <laughs> you can tell I love fantasy. Um, but let's go into Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, and then we'll pray. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. The beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold nor or hot. And because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be truly rich, white robes so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door knocking. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and him with me. So to the one who conquers, I will grant a seat on my throne, just as I have conquered and sat on my father's throne. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me quickly say a prayer and then we'll get into this. Father, we pray that you will please open our ears so that we may hear what your spirit is saying. We pray that your word today will be like fire that melts our hearts and hammer that breaks the hardness of our hearts. What I'm praying for here today, God, is you will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. I'm praying that you open the eyes of our hearts so that we know the hope to which you have called us 
And what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in hearts, the saints? So Lord, please come meet us where we are. Speak a word to us today. Draw us closer to you. Let us see your faithfulness and your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. So to give a brief background of the Laodicean church, right? So pretty much it's one of the wealthiest commercial centers in the world at the time, right? And one of the, we have two big cities near it, which is uh, Hierapolis and Colossae, right? So Laodicea was very much known for their banking, as well as their manufacturing of textile, black wool, which we'll see later on. And then they actually had a famous medical center. So in a sense, they had everything. Right, pretty much like us here in the valley, right? They had everything around them, a very affluent neighborhood and an affluent church, right? And what we would see is that the message to the church was actually one of the harshest ones out of the seven messages to the churches, right? So where we are in Revelations, right? Revelations 2 to 3, uh, we see Jesus basically giving John uh, a series of messages to the seven main churches, right? In Asia and Asia Minor, right? And the church in Laodicea was the last message, right? And they were the wealthiest church, really, you could say, out of all those seven churches. And they probably also had the harshest message. Now, the idea behind this, when you read into the text, is they were probably compromising on some of their values, which we'll see later on, in that they were assimilating some of the cultural views of the day, uh, which could be maybe um, taking on some of the patron deities of the trade guilds that sort of manage the economic uh, influences of the environment, right? So we'll get more into that. Uh, one of the things that jumps right at us, right, is that there are a lot of similarities to where we are today, right? If you would write this, this message today, right, maybe it would be to the church in the United States, right, or to the churches in Silicon Valley, maybe even Mercy Hill, right? So we'll be drawing a couple of things as we go ahead, and I'm going to draw just five observations as we go into this, right? So the first thing I want to say there is the first words of Jesus were this, I know your works. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, but we are saved by grace through faith. Why my works? Why are my works so important? And one of the heresies that we have come to sort of assimilate today, especially in the evangelical circles, right? It's this idea that my works don't really matter, that I can be saved, say prayer, and then I can sort of live my life the way I want to live it. And then at some point I'll see Jesus in heaven, right? It's this heresy that my works don't really matter. I can basically be the same person, right? Now, don't get me wrong, right? We are saved by faith through grace alone, and we are never justified by our works. But if we are in the kingdom of God, over time, right, over time, not immediately, over time, our lives are supposed to represent or take on the characteristics of Christ because we're in the kingdom, right? So basically, A.W. Tozer expresses it this way. He expresses this feeling that there is a notable heresy that has come into being throughout Christian circles. This widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as savior, but that we somehow have the right to postpone our obedience to him and he is not Lord. In a sense, it's almost like we are vampire Christians, 
right? It's like, Jesus, I need a little bit of your blood to wash me clean, right? But then I'll see you in heaven. At the end of my life, when I'm done with everything I want to do, then I'll see you in heaven. Right? And, and, and so, while it is true that God accepts us as we are, we sometimes use that as this excuse that I don't really need to work on myself. I don't really need to assimilate the principles of the kingdom. It's almost like I see Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. Because when it's Lord, you know, that's getting on my mojo. Why, why, do I have to, <laughs> why do I have to obey him? Why do I have to change this thing I'm doing? Right. And, and so one of the things we have to be careful about here is, am I seeing grace as a means to continue in sin? Is grace simply a form of sin management to me? Right, but, or is it a way really to empower me to live in the kingdom of God? Right, and so you see Jesus again going at them. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, which we'll get into. But that's the first thing he says to them. Their works. Right, you see, in, in Titus chapter 2, I'm just going to quickly read it here. We, we see a different view of what grace is. Right, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, which we know. This is the other part we don't really think of sometimes. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God is there to help us do what we cannot do, namely be transformed into Christ-likeness. You see, there is no salvation without becoming a disciple, an apprentice of God. Right? There is no salvation without obedience to God. Now, again, it's over time. I'm not saying we change immediately. No, not at all. I'm saying over time, usually a long time, are we becoming more like Christ? Am I beginning to take on his values or the values of society? which is what Christ is saying to the Laodicean church. I know your works. Right. Also, if you're like me, and I'll tell this story. Uh, when I got saved, in quotes, right? So I remember being at home, uh, playing some game on the floor, and my sister walks up to me. And right? she starts talking to me about, you know, Jesus and salvation and hell and rapture. And there's like this lantern beside me, right? So I put my hand into it because she's talking about hell and fire. I'm like, yeah, I don't want this. I'm like, so how do I avoid hell? She's like, oh, you just have to say this prayer and believe in Christ. I'm like, okay, good. Let's say the prayer. But she's like, hold on. If you wait till the day of rapture, though, you can say the prayer and go to heaven. And then she had this image of the Holy Spirit will come like a dove and we'll all attach to him and he'll fly us to heaven. I'm like, so if I can wait till that day, why do I need to do it now? I'm like, just, you know, tell me when the day is and I'll do it. Just leave me alone. <laughs> and she's like, but no, 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 no. Nobody knows the day. I'm like, so why have you been bothering me? Let's say the prayer and get it on with. <laughs> right? Now, that was my initial, I don't even know what to call it. Right? But I said the prayer <laughs> because I didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> but what I'm trying to bring out of it is, like myself back then, sometimes we think we can control when we come to faith. And so when we feel a tugging in our hearts, sometimes we think, let me live my life. 
right? And then at some point in the future, I'll do this faith business. And then that way I'll see Jesus in heaven, right? It's almost like we're trying to game the system. Right? But, but the problem is we do not control life and we do not control the sovereignty of God that is talking at our hearts. So if Christ is talking at our hearts today, we need to respond to him. Right. Going back to this issue of Savior and Lord, I, w- I want to share a quote by Tim Keller, um, where he gives this account of being at a Christian camp, right? And a woman was teaching and she basically gives the story. No, not a story, but basically an illustration where she says, if the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper, right? If that distance reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a paper stack 70 feet high, right? Paper stack 70 feet high. Right, again, one paper, 92 million miles. Distance between the earth and the nearest star, a paper stack 70 feet high, right? And then he says the diameter of our galaxy, Milky Way, right? Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 meters high. Again, a stack of paper 310 meters high. One paper, 92 million miles, right? And we know that our galaxy is like a little tiny dot, in the universe, right? We know that Jesus sustains all of this with the power of his word. In a way, it's almost like on his fingertips. How do you ask someone like that to come into your life and sort of be an assistant? Like, when I need you, I'll call on you, right? Like, when I'm in trouble and I really need something, I'll come to you. Like, at my vending machine, I go to. It's almost like saying... If you wanted to invite Nick into your house, you would say, Nick, you're welcome, but Weber, you're not welcome. Right? So Nick is Nick Weber. It's like you want to take Nick, but not Weber. Right? So exactly, you can't do that. Right? He has to be Savior and Lord. There is no other way. You see, in the Great Commission, uh, Matthew, I believe Matthew 28, right, where he says, Go ye therefore into the world and make disciples of all nations. What we usually do is we make converts. Because we say a prayer and then you live your life. And so that there is the great omission as it were. In the great commission that we carry out. We make converts, not disciples. And a disciple, the word disciple really is an apprentice. Right, you are learning to be like your master. That's it. So Jesus has to be Lord and Savior. So my question for you today is really for myself. Is how am I taking my apprenticeship to Christ? Am I taking that seriously? Do I carve out time to grow, to become like him? Or is it more of a, you know what, I'm in church. I work in children's ministry. I'm even preaching. You know, what else do I need to do? Right? Or am I actually growing? Am I looking at myself, examining myself, and taking on its nature over time? Again, over time. Right? So going on to verse 15, 
still staying on verse 15, sorry. Uh, Jesus says, um, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So going to uh, the next slide, I wanted to talk a little bit on the next observation, which is we are the wretched ones. Right, but before I get into that, I want to quickly touch on uh, the lukewarm water, right? That analogy to understand what it is, right? So I think there's a traditional understanding of that, and that you're either hot for God or you're kind of like cold against Him, right? But that's probably not true. You see, if if you look at that uh, picture right there, so you have Hierapolis and Colossae, right? And the the lukewarm water is actually uh, an indication; it's a unique feature. Of the church in Laodicea, right? Because from Hierapolis, they had the hot springs, right? And for Colossae, they have this very cold, refreshing water. And Laodicea itself, they didn't have access to water, so they had to pipe their hot water from Hierapolis. The problem is by the time they drew that into uh, Laodicea, it became warm, lukewarm water. Not really useful for anything at that point, right? So they either had to heat it up again to use it, you know, maybe for medicinal purposes, to do whatever it is uh, you might need hot water for. Or they had to let it cool down to, for example, drink it, and it would be a refreshing thing. So really, because it was a lukewarm water, it was kind of very tepid, emetic, really nauseous to them. right? And so what Jesus was saying is, just as that lukewarm water is nauseous to you, your conduct is nauseous to me. Right. So that is the idea of that lukewarm water. Right. And that is why he would say, because the reason he gives is said, uh, because you are lukewarm. Right. I will spit you out of my mouth for because you say. Right. So that's their conduct. Right. Because you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Right. So it's their conduct. The, the lukewarm water there is really talking about their conduct. And so the, the, the when you really look at those threefold rebuke, right, or not threefold rebuke, but basically uh, the three things that they said they are rich, they are wealthy, right, they've prospered, they need nothing, right? When we try to draw the principle there, it's this idea of self-sustenance. It's this self-reliance thing, right? And really, if we're being honest, it's a religion, let me speak for myself, that I subscribe to. Right, the, the, this religion of self-sustenance, of self-importance, and really a very unhealthy form of self-esteem. We think it's a good self-esteem, but really it's kind of unhealthy. Because the focus is really on myself and my strength and what I can do. So I was going to show you my biceps, but I'm not strong enough. So. <laughs> and we leave that. Peter, Peter can show you his biceps. That's what I was checking today, Peter. You're checking your biceps. <laughs> um. But you see, we balk at this idea that we are not enough in ourselves. There is something about that that robs us the wrong way. Right? So, for example, I was reading an article where a young man asked, isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? And the answer, yes, it is. But there's something about that. 
about somehow accepting you are crippled and you can't make it on your own. When society really tells you, like, dude, you have to be confident and you got to blow your own smoke. If nobody is blowing your smoke, blow your smoke. Right? Fake it until you make it. Go up there and talk about how awesome you are. And when you don't, really, you just get pushed to the side. In some ways, walked over. Right? And so, yes, Christianity is a crutch. But again, it sort of rubs us the wrong way. Ugh, crutch, cripples. Ugh, I don't want to be crippled. Right? It's offensive to our self-sufficiency. But let me read you the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, so in reality, the only people who ever get what Jesus has to give are the sick people. And here's a, a secret you probably all know. There are no well people. We are all sick. There are no righteous. He, he gave a distinction there. I did not come from the righteous. I came from the sinners. There are no righteous people. We are all sinners. We are all in need of this grace. Truthfully, we are all on crutches. So this is why we need God to be, well, he is always just and judge. But you see, we needed him to be our justifier. Right? Through that rugged cross. So that he might not crush us. Right, but really, he might save us by offering his son as a sacrifice. We are all sick. We need help. So I want to draw three things from the Apostle Paul that really, hopefully, we are able to uh, appropriate into our lives. You see, because the moment we begin to think we are not wretched, truthfully, then we are the wretched ones par excellence. Right, amongst wretched ones, we stand high above them. We, anytime you think you don't need him, and, and, and it's not, it's usually not a conscious thing you say because the fool has said in his heart, not with his lips. The fool says in his heart, not with his lips. There is no God. How do I do that, for example? I run through life a lot of times without even thinking of God. And even thinking, maybe I should ask God about this. Then when I'm in trouble, I'm like, ah. God, how do we fix this? Right? It's almost like I live as a functional atheist at times. You go through your day, week, and they, I mean, you have the regular touch points with God. But really, there is no hard exchange, no real focus, sitting down, dedicated, just looking at Christ. Right? So I want to point out three things from Paul's life. And I'm using Paul because we all look at Paul as... You know, someone to be emulated, someone we respect, right? In First Corinthians chapter 15, I'm just going to read through this real quick. Paul makes a statement, and this is about A.D. 53 or 54. He, he makes a statement, for I am the least of the apostles, least of the apostles, and worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What I want you to focus on there is he calls himself the least of apostles, right? In Ephesians chapter 3, this is almost 10 years later. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. So, least of the apostles, and then least of all the saints. Right? You see a trajectory there. Right? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and this is around the same time. 
um, he says, um, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Of whom I'm the foremost. Excuse me. So he goes from list of the apostles, list of all the saints, all the people of God, chief of sinners, list of everyone really. Right. So would we truly see ourselves in need of Christ? Not just simply as Savior, but as Lord. Would we turn away from this religion of self-sufficiency, the self-reliance, to God-reliance? And again, how, how do I do this? Being ungrateful. It, it's really something. If you sit down, let me think about myself. If I sit down and see how ungrateful I am. There are times I go to buy gas and I don't, you know, I'm going to buy gas for however much. And it never occurs to me, like I'm not concerned, I just give the money and I go. And one day I'm like, you know, some people can't do this. Right? Like this isn't something that has happened by your right. And I'm just speaking that as an example. Now how do I deflect my flaws? Am I simply oblivious to the plight of those around me? Do I find some way to explain away the suffering of people? Whether I use some kind of theological explanation or sociological explanation, whether people of the same race, across races, across nations. Am I saying that really we are all wretched and I am just as much in need of him? Right. Now, is this not true of us here in the valley, right? Where we typically tend to depend on our intellect, right? That's like the idol here. How smart you are, what you're doing, what's the cool thing you're doing, where do you work, right? Who you are is equated to what are you doing, what have you done, what are people saying about you, Right? And we do this almost con- unconsciously, right? Just we just keep going. And so Jesus' challenge to the Laodiceans Christian self sufficiency. It reminds us how we readily absorb Christian how we Christians absorb the attitudes of our culture without pausing for critical reflection. Right? We just sort of swim in the same current. We just sort of go ahead with the flow. After all, life is good. Enjoy life. Which you should, by the way. <laughs> Now, what's the solution to all of this? What's the solution to this religion of self-sufficiency? Right. In verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, um, the... The creed behind criticizing Christianity as a crutch, right? The creed behind that is that joy and fulfillment should be found in the pursuit of self-reliance, self-confidence, right? Self-determination and self-esteem. That's the creed. The, the, the idea that the reason we balk at this idea that I am that I do not have what it takes to make this happen, whatever this is, the reason we balk at that idea is because what we subscribe to, what we believe, what we are taught, which there is an angle or a dimension to this that is true, right? 
But the, the strategy of the enemy is that he takes what is good and he infuses it with lies and corrupts that idea, right? So there is something to self-confidence, right? There is something to self-determination and healthy self-esteem. Right? But the strategy of the enemy is to take that, to corrupt it and to push it to the extreme. Whereby basically I might confess a faith and say a word and then I use Romans 10.10 10 to back it up and say with the mouth you confess, right? And with your heart you believe and you're saved, right? So I use scripture to even back up my way of saying, you know what, I said a prayer. Romans 10.10 10 says that. With the mouth you confess and you're saved, right? With the heart you believe and you're justified. Romans 10.10. 10. But again, we must remember that Satan did the same thing to Jesus in the temptation, the wilderness. Where he quoted scripture out of context. Okay? And that's the key. Right? So, pretty much any Messiah that comes along and proposes to replace self reliance with childlike God reliance, or self confidence with submissive God confidence, or self determination with sovereign grace, or self esteem with magnificent mercy. For the unworthy. Any savior that comes along and proposes that. Is a Messiah that is going to be a threat. To the religion of self. And how I want to do things. Right? And yet this is exactly what Jesus is prescribing. When he says. Buy gold from me. So that you may truly be rich. Right? That stands against. Remember we talked about how they were very wealthy. They had a banking economic system around them. And so Jesus is saying, buy gold from me that is refined by fire without the impurity of cultural values and you know all of that. Buy gold from me so that you may be truly rich. Right? And then he talks about white robes. Right? We talked about how they were very famous for their textile manufacturing. Actually, they were very famous for black wool. And so Jesus is saying white robes as opposed to black wool was almost putting a thumb in their eye. Right, not to rely on what you have, but to rely on me. Right, and then when he says, um, so that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, that phrase is usually used, especially in the Old Testament, as an accusation against Israel by idolatry. So, again, it's this idea that you've taken on the value system of society, right, and you are nurturing idols within your heart. A very common one here in the valley. We mask our greed as ambition. Because ambition is a great thing. It is a good thing. But under that, sometimes there is greed. That's what we call ambition. Right? But going back, so Jesus prescribes eye salve so that they may see. Again, a thumb in their eye because they actually had a famous medical school. And they actually had a famous uh, eye doctor there, actually, that made this eye salve. But really, it was like Phrygian powder. So again, Jesus is poking, eye, poking a thumb in the eye. Meaning, rather than rely on yourself, rely on me. Right? So that's the rebuke there. And so Jesus is calling us to do this exchange. This transfer from our self-reliance to God-reliance. God-dependence. Humble God-dependence. Now, how do we do this? How do we actually purchase gold refined by fire and this white robes and this ice off? It will, what's it going to cost us? Really, it will cost you nothing. 
right? Because it only costs Jesus' blood on that cross. And so the way is really paved for you. So on one hand, it costs you nothing. On the other hand, it will cost everything. Because again, there is no salvation without discipleship. There is no salvation without obedience to Christ. And so this is what it will cost you. Let me read from Luke 14. Luke 14, chapter 20, oh, sorry, Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, right, we're about to perform that exchange. If anyone comes to me, this is Jesus speaking, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, it is like picking up all your significant relationships. It's basically saying the word hate today is more, you have to prefer me to that, to all those relationships, right? See, Whoever doesn't do all of that, whoever doesn't prioritize me as number one, really cannot be my disciple. Right? Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, sometimes we read that and we think Jesus is putting like this immense roadblock to following him. But I want you to see it differently. It's kind of like me telling someone who is, who is medically blind and can't see that. Unless you can see, you can't drive. Right? So if I tell someone who is medically blind that unless you can see, I can't allow you to drive. It's not that I'm placing an obstacle. Right? It's more of just reality and what I want you to do is see. And so what Jesus wants us to do is, for example, prioritize him. Pick up our cross and then follow him. Because we can't do that. We can't really follow him unless we pick up that cross on which will be crucified. Right? Which is really the crucifixion of our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency. And then verse 33, he says this, which is always convicting for me. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, the sense isn't go give away everything. Which might be. But really it's more of. I have to be above that. Savior and Lord. Or else you really can't follow. Right. So. After we've looked at what. The stinging rebuke really. I love what Jesus says next. Right. Verse 19. Let me quickly read that. So he said. Those whom I love. I reprove. And discipline. So be zealous and repent. Right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so what's the point behind this thing in rebuke? Really, love. That's his motivation. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, I know that whenever we talk about God's discipline, it's always hard to, sometimes hard to process, right? And I know Nick dealt with this idea of theodicy, right? In terms of if God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil, right? And we talked about, uh, you know, having the right perspective. We talked about setting principles. And then we talked about a paradigm, right? So I'm trying to summarize all of that now. 
You see, there's this quote, which I'm sure you've heard in one way or the other, right? So I'm just going to phrase it. It says, if there is a way for God to make you into who he intends you to be, without the trials, the difficulties, the affliction, he would do so. So if there's a way for him to get you to where, to who he wants you to be, really, not where, right? Without the trial and the affliction and all of that, he would. Why? Because love demands it. Now, you have to remember, God doesn't have love. God is love. Right? So because his love demands it, he would do that. Right? Here's the other part, the difficult part. If there is no way for God to form you and make you into who he intends you to be without some of that affliction and trial and pain, then he will also take you through that, promising to walk with you every step of the way. Why? Because love demands it. It's the same. Love demands it. It's always love. His motivation. Right? And let me pick a paradigm here that captures everything. Who? Jesus. Act one, sin one. Get money. Right? If there was a way for God to secure our eternity without Christ going through the cross, then he would do that. But if the only way to secure that is the cross, then he would walk Christ through the cross, which is what happened. Right, so his motivation is always love. That is what he's after. His motivation is always love. Now, after that rebuke, and after Jesus saying, Basically saying, I love you. This is why I'm rebuking you. Then he says, behold, I stand knocking at the door. The idea is this continuous, persistent knock. Right, so the king of kings comes after an unworthy soul. Sure, he has rebuked. And then he chases right after you. Right, so behold, I stand knocking at the door. And it's an invitation for us to open the door. It says if anyone. So it's an open invitation to everybody. There are no restrictions. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. A two way intimate relationship. We, we know from our studies in Luke. That uh, having uh, any kind of meal really. Is, is this idea of forming a deeper relationship with the person. Right? And so that's the idea. Standing and knocking at the door. And then I like this third part. It says, to him who conquers, I will grant to sit on my throne. I told you that I love revelations. I love things like this. I'm like, yeah, where's the throne? Let me sit on that throne. And then let me rule the world. <laughs> Very wrong view. <laughs> right. But the idea of sitting, the, the, first of all, the idea of a throne, the throne signifies like royal honor and authority. Right. Now, the idea of sitting on a throne with Christ it's a place of highest honors. But no, it doesn't mean you become Christ. No, you're not Christ. Right. But what it means, though, is this deeper form of intimacy. The idea of sitting on a throne with him is the idea of full participation with him in what he's doing. So, again, we have a rebuke and then an invitation to deeper intimacy. And then how do we conquer? He gives us right there. The solution is right there. He said, to the one who conquers, I will grant a seat on my throne, just as I conquered and sat on my father's throne. 
so we can't get through him. So he's the one, right? This is why Revelation 12, 11, I was telling you about that battle between uh, uh, Michael and the dragon, right? Revelation 12, 11 says, and they overcame him, they conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, right? And they did not love their life so much that they shrank back from death. That's the obedience part. That's the part where Christ is Lord. Right? So, how do we do this? Right? How do I examine myself, right, and make sure that Christ is not just Savior, but Lord? How do I see myself as the wretched one by excellence? And how do I find that the way out of that is in Christ alone? Right? So, really, October 31st, I believe, a uh, couple, what was that, Monday, Tuesday, October 31st, last Tuesday, marked the 500th year of the Reformation, right? And that's what we mark it as, right? And basically, it's marked as when Martin Luther. Uh, nailed his 95 Thesis, right, to uh, Wittenberg's uh, Castle Church, I believe, to the door, right? Whether he nailed it or anyhow, we, can't, we call it that. He nailed it, whatever actually happened. I don't know if he took a nail and nailed it, but anyway. Right, so what we see here is Jesus saying, be zealous and repent. Now, I want to draw something for Martin Luther, because in his first thesis, he says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, right, he intended that to be the entire life of believers, right? So when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. See, all of life is repentance. That, that's where that phrase is coined from, if you've heard it. All of life is repentance. In, in a sense, you see, we have to always turn away from sin and trust in the good news that Christ saves sinners. We see, that is just not a one-time inaugural experience or event. Right? It, it's, it's this daily substance of our lives. Right? The gospel is for every day and every moment Repentance is to be our continual posture. In a sense, it's almost like we, we hold in our mouths the bread of our sins. But let me be clear. I'm not saying we are always self-critical and be crushed by our sins. I'm not saying that. Right? And I'll get to that soon. But what I'm saying is we, we carry out our walk with God with this sense of inadequacy because we know it can never happen by the sweat of our brow or the strength of our arms, right? But we carry out our work with this believing confidence in Christ. So yes, there is a sense of inadequacy knowing that I cannot do this by myself, but there is always this believing confidence and dependence on Christ. Right. And then 30 years later, right? Martin Luther's last words, at least what was recorded, was this. We are beggars. This is true. Again, that idea of repentance. Right? So how then do we continuously make this exchange where we transfer our self-reliance into God-dependence? Two quick truths, right? And then we'll wrap up. And I'm getting this really from Keller, from Timothy Keller. One is 
We are more sinful. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And at the same time, we are loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. So on one hand, we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. But we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. So my question today to wrap up is, how are you hearing all of this? At the end of the passage that we read, Revelations 3, 14 to 22, right? There is a phrase there that is always there to all the seven, to all the seven churches, right? Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is this posture of our heart. How are we hearing? We treated that also in Luke, where we said, take heed, therefore, how you hear. It is always the posture of our heart. At the beginning, or again, of this passage where he says, um, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, Jesus recites certain titles, right? He said, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, right? So those titles, the amen, the faithful and the true witness, is actually also present in Revelations 1, 5, when Jesus is actually speaking to John, right? But those titles point to the veracity of God. The God of truth. Right? It is this idea that what the words that I say to you are a sure thing. An everlasting rock. You can always depend on that. Right? So all of this is giving weight to the words he's speaking. And then that title that says, you know, the Amen, the Faithful and True Witness, the beginning of God's creation. The title there, beginning, really means a divine ruler. Right. It's a way it's almost like how back in the day, the Roman emperors will call themselves the first of mankind, the princeps. Right. So it's this idea where you say, I am the first of my kind, so to say. So it's, it's this idea of divine ruler. But again, the point is to, 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 to make us see the seriousness, to give weight to the words that Jesus said to the church, because he's about to rebuke them in a very harsh way, but really loving way. And so the point really is to give weight to those words. So my question really is, how are we all doing with taking Jesus as Savior and Lord? How are we seeing ourselves as the wretched ones that are always in need of him? Am I truly making that transference from self-reliance to humble God dependence? The continuity of that. Right? He says, be zealous and repent. All of life is repentance. Am I continually looking unto the face of Christ? Because this is how we are transformed from one glory to another. Basically changed into his likeness by beholding the face of Christ. So really at the end of the day, right? what I want to leave you with is, to really find ways to examine yourself continuously. It's not meant to be punitive. It's meant to be life-giving and liberating. To continue to examine ourselves. Seeing our need for God. Accepting His love for us. Right? Whatever form that takes. Right? My prayerlessness most of the time comes from really a sense that I think I don't need Him. And then when I get in trouble, I know how to pray. I find ways to pray. I'm not that busy. Before I can be so busy, I'm like, ah, I'm busy. But when I'm in trouble, mm-mm-mm. I find ways. Right? 
So how are we all doing? Our apprenticeship to Christ. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you. And we bless you for your love, for your faithfulness, for your grace. We thank you that your rebuke always comes from a place of love. Always. Love. Thank you, God, because you love us with this persistence, this depth. You are always chasing after us. And so, Father, our prayer today is that we will come to truly accept you as Lord and Savior. That we will truly transfer our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency into God-dependence. That we will look to you alone, knowing that we are saved by grace and through faith alone. And knowing that you love us, that we will be able to continuously make this searching and fearless self-inventory. Coming before you, seeking your face. Thirsting to be like you. Not so we prove out anything to anyone. Not so we are justified. We know we are justified by the blood of Christ and that's it. But because you are in your, because we are in your kingdom, we know that you are working in us. That you are the one who works and wills in us, right? To be like you. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So help us, God. Help us. We are in need of your help. In Jesus' name. Amen.